Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. Isaiah, chapter 51. Now, in our last lesson, if you'll remember, we started with the first verse of chapter 51, and we gave you three different places where the word hearken to me. In verse 1, it said, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. Verse 4, it says, hearken unto me, my people, and give ear. Verse 7, it said, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, uh, the people in whose heart is my law. So, in these three instances, and I'll just bring you up to date and then we'll pick up where we left off. In these three instances, the first one, the Lord told him to look back. And in the next instance, he told him to look ahead. And then the last instance, verse 7, he told him to look within, where we, he would either find fear or faith. And then we came down to another division. And Isaiah uses the words doubly in many ways. And it says in verse 9, Awake, awake. And we already expounded verses 9 through 16. And in doing that, I'll just bring you up to date of what we found. You know, he had spoken the hearken to me to admonish the people. But awake, awake is for uh, the arousing of the Lord. They wanted God to awake. And come to their aid. In fact, verse 9 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So he wanted, uh, these people were wanting God to pay more attention to them. And to come to their rescue. And so this remnant in Babylon prayed as though God were asleep and needed to be awakened. They wanted God to bear his arm as he did when he defeated Pharaoh. And redeemed his people from Egyptian bondage. And they knew that God had shown his strong arm to deliver them out of Egyptian bondage many years before, and now they wanted deliverance from Babylon. And the return from Babylon was looked upon as another exodus, as if they were coming out of Egypt again, but another exodus of a different kind and another deliverance. And with God wholly in charge and the enemy completely defeated, this is what they wanted. And, of course, God replied unto their prayer, verses 12 through 16, if you have it. And this we've already studied. And when he replied to their prayer, he gave them words of comfort. He reminded them again of the frailty of man. Remember in verse 12, he speaks of man as grass and as frail. And then he, he reminds them further of the power of God, the Creator, and so why should they, they be afraid of grass when God of the universe was on their side? Because they're his people with whom he had deposited his word. Down in verse 16, he says, I have put my words in thy mouth and I have covered thee with, uh, in the shadow of mine hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, thou art my people. So he deposited his word with them and he had released them, protected them. Notice what he said. I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, mine hand. Remember back in the Old Testament earlier, before in the book of Exodus, where Moses, uh, he wanted to see God's glory. And God said, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand. So when my glory passes by, that God's glory and brightness and holiness would not destroy Moses. He, he says, there is a place by me and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And I will hide thee in the cleft of the rock. We sing the song about being hidden in the cleft of the rock. And we're, Christ is the cleft of the rock that hides us from the holiness of God. 
Because God's holiness would devour sinful man. And we're protected from the holiness of God. We're protected from the wrath of the enemy. And the holiness and the, the righteousness and the standard of God's law we're protected uh, from in Jesus Christ. Do you remember in the Old Testament there was the Ark of the Covenant? And the, the law was hidden in this Ark of the Covenant. The two tables of stone, this Ark of Testimony, is a picture of what? Christ. And the law is hidden in Christ. So that when we're in Christ, we're not afraid of the condemnation of the law. We preached this morning on, we gave you one quotation from Romans chapter 8, which said this, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, a sin offering, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So we see that we keep the law, not because we keep it by the letter, but we keep it in Christ, who is our substitute and who has kept it for us. And he's fulfilled every righteous demand of the law. So anyway, here uh, we find that all of this happened down to verse 16. Now, verse 17 is where we to, to pick up again. If you'll notice, the same as verse 9, we have the two words, awake, awake. Now, in this second call, the prophet speaks of the ruined city of Jerusalem. And he pictures her as a mother in a drunken stupor with no children to help her. Look at this, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury, the cup of His judgment, the cup of His wrath, the cup of His fury. In the Bible, judgment is sometimes pictured as drinking of a cup of wine. It's said sometimes that the cup of God's wrath is, is filled. In the Old Testament, it speaks of her iniquity, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. In other words, the cup of iniquity was not yet full. And God speaks in the Psalms of a cup of judgment that He will give to, to those that oppose Him and, and in His fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. So what is He saying? Jerusalem's children had gone into captivity. But he's saying further on down as we read that they would return and give their mother new hope and a new beginning. God will take the cup of judgment from the Jews and give it to their enemies. And as we progress in the reading of the rest of this chapter, we'll find that he does exactly that. He had made his own people to drink of this cup of judgment. And we see the results of God's judgment as we progress. But after all this suffering, after her long night of suffering, verses 17 uh, through 25, we'll find that God then turns and He will take the cup of His fury which, was, uh, which uh, had made Jerusalem to stagger and will give it to her enemies who have gone beyond the limits that God assigned to them. And they had tipped the scale too. And now they would receive the cup of judgment. There's a time that God will remove the sufferings from us and give it to our enemies. I was thinking of the poem that Brother Nichols read a little bit ago. Shall we give thanks when all things in the midst of trials, in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of the heartaches, in the midst of all? Yes, because someday God will remove those things. Remember old Job? 
God took away, uh, He permitted Satan to take away everything that he had in a, almost an instant. He lost his sons and his daughters. He lost his possessions. He lost his herds of camels and, and animals of all kind. All of his wealth was gone down the drain. And he was smitten from the top of his head to the sole of his uh, feet with sore boils. And his wife said, curse God and die. Do you still maintain your integrity? His wife turned against him, and Job yet maintained his integrity. And he said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. What did he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that's faith, isn't it? And that's believing that in spite of how bad things can get. And I don't see many people in the Bible pictured as bad off as Job was at that time. And yet he still maintained his faith. And James refers to him and says, Consider the sufferings of Job, the afflictions of Job, and how that he looked to, with patience endured and looked by faith to the, to the end. And Job, God gave Job twice as much at the end as he had at the beginning. God turned the things around and blessed Job's life. You see, you never know what God's going to do in your life. And there's always a purpose for sufferings and trials. And there was a purpose for the sufferings of even his chosen people, Israel, here, the nation, because of what they were going through in captivity. But they had brought it about by their own sins. They had sold themselves out. God didn't sell them out to this situation. They had sold themselves out. And regardless of whether we understand it or not, we need to realize that God is still in control of it and can deliver us out of all temptations. So notice what it says. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has, he tells them to stand up, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. No, none of her children could deliver these two things are coming to thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction and famine and sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Therefore hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. The result of God's judgment, they were drunk with their own uh, doings. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith thy Lord, thy Lord, the Lord. I like that. Look at verse 22. In spite of all this, God says, thus saith thy Lord, the Lord. He still says, you're my people and I'm your Lord. I'm your master. I'm Jehovah God. Thus saith the Lord, thy Lord. And thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Now, he puts himself now in a position of not condemning them in a court of justice, but putting himself on the line to clear them from their cause, to clear their case. The Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is our advocate and the one that pleads our case. God pleaded the case of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling. They, had, they were drinking of the cup with the dregs thereof. In other words, the fullness of that cup and even down to the very bottom. You know, we say 
certain kind of coffee. Maxwell House is good to the last drop and even down to the dregs. Well, God had filled a cup of fury and they were drinking of that cup down to the dregs thereof. And God says, look, he says, behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. He says, even the very dregs of that cup have been taken out. I've cleaned it out for you so that all of it's gone. Thou shalt no more drink it again. Wouldn't it be good if God would say to us, in all the midst of all the things that we've suffered, thou shalt no more drink it again? He has said that as far as the future is concerned. Do you know that? He says there's coming a time that there shall be no more pain, there shall be no more tears, there shall be no more sorrow, and there shall be no more death, for the former things are passed away. And you know, sometimes... And we'll see it in the next chapter. But sometimes I think God permits us to endure a lot of things in this life so we won't become too attached to it, too settled on our lees and too happy to be here. Maybe puts a little longing for a better life and a hereafter in our soul. huh? And in the midst of everything that you endure, He wants you to see that there is really no permanent peace until glory. And a lot of times people say, well, you know, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to go through that? Well, maybe we'd be like God's people. We're going to see in this next chapter, when we get to it in just uh, in a moment, where that they had to be dragged out of Babylon, just like Lot out of Sodom. They became too attached. So let's go on with it. Verse uh, 23, But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. Now what do he say? I'm going to take the cup. I've taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling. Verse 22, Even the dregs of the cup of my fury, thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. I'm going to give this cup of fury to your enemies, which have said to thy soul, Bow down. In other words, had, keep, had kept them in uh, servitude and bondage, that we may go over, and thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. So he says, I'm going to take it out of your hands and I'm going to take the cup from you and you're not going to drink it anymore and I'm going to give that cup to, the, to your enemies. Now then in chapter 52, verses 1 through 6, we have another, the third wake-up call. It's also addressed to Jerusalem and it's a command to wake up, not only to wake up, but to dress up. To dress up. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 through 6 is another wake-up call. It says, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments. It's not enough for her to put off the stupor that she was in, the drunkenness that we spoke of, wherein she was in this drunken stupor under God's furious judgment and all the things that we've taught. But it's not enough. She must put on her glorious garments. Babylon, the queen, would fall to the dust. But Jerusalem would rise up from the dust and be enthroned as a queen. Egypt had enslaved God's people and Assyria had oppressed them. And Babylon had taken them captive. So you have Egypt and Assyria and Babylon had all caused them a lot of grief. But now that was ended. And of course the ultimate fulfillment of the promise will occur when the Messiah returns and delivers Jerusalem from her enemies and establishes Mount Zion as the joy of all the earth. And this is predicted in the 61st chapter of Isaiah, verses 4 through 11, a prediction of a future glory of His people and the nation of Israel. So look at this. Verse 1, Awake, awake, put on thy strength. The strength is connected with the garments. 
O Zion, put on the, thy beautiful garments, probably and possibly their priestly attire, because this was these were beautiful garments, and these were also garments of of actually strength because of her priestly function. O Jerusalem, the holy city. The city of Jerusalem is called the holy city eight times in Scripture. It has been set apart by God. It's a holy city set apart by God for His exclusive purposes. If you want the references of where Jerusalem is called the holy city, I can give them to you later. And it's been set apart. But when His people refused to obey Him, He ordered it destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. First by the Babylonians, and then by the Romans later on. Remember? After Jesus. Titus came in in 70 A.D. and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, the city and the temple, and the temple grounds were plowed up as a field. And Jesus had told the disciples, the apostles, when they were pointing out the glory and the, and the, the silver and the gold and the jewels of that temple, He says, there shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And it took place according to Christ's prediction. During the captivity, God's name was blasphemed too. We'll get to that in a moment. But right now, let's take up with verse 1 again. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth thou shalt no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. The presence of the foreigners that had come in and the unclean. Verse 2 says, Shake thyself from the dust, arise. And sit down. Arise and sit down upon your throne. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. From the seat of mourners, from Israel's captivity, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Verse 3, For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Israel's redemption here was not a commercial transaction. You'll be redeemed, but what? What does it say? Without money. You and I are redeemed without money. We quoted this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as you know you were not redeemed, here's money, with silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, without money, but not without price, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Sheila sang a little bit ago about the blood of Christ that has covered our sins. Our sins are covered. The word uh, covered or atonement means to cover over. So that God cannot see our sins because of the blood of Christ. There's redemption. There's covering. When God looks upon you and I who have confessed our sins and have come to Christ as our Savior and He has shed His blood for our sins, then He sees only the blood of Christ. And He doesn't see our sins. He sees us perfect, clothed, covered with the robe of righteousness. My, what a grace and what a boon we have in the Lord. A lot of people do not realize what a blessing. Do we realize it? We who are saved by the grace of God, do we realize that God has actually covered all of our wickedness and all of our sins, and so we're clothed in with a robe of righteousness? Flip on over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Look at this. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
As a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. In other words, we're just as clean and pure in the sight of God because He's covered us with a robe of righteousness. You know, the gospel has a lot of wonderful truths, doesn't it? When you think the little boys and girls, we used to have them stand here in front of the pulpit and line up all the way across here. And they'd sing, I'd lead them in the songs, and they'd say, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Now, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. The new robe was spotless, had never been worn. Now, the best thing that I, in my life that I ever did do was take off the old robe. The old robe of self-righteousness, the old robe of, of, that was dirty, that was of myself, and put on the new robe of Christ's righteousness. You say, well, that's for little children. That's for grown-ups. That's for everybody. That's for men and women, boys and girls. It says so right here in Isaiah 61 that He's clothed me the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. And back here in Isaiah 52, notice in verse uh, 3, For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught. We have done that too, haven't we? But He says, And ye shall be redeemed without money. We were redeemed without money. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. They did go down into Egypt. He's speaking of Jacob and his sons and uh, all the children of Israel down in Egypt in bondage, and God delivered them by Moses and later on took them into Canaan's land under Joshua's leadership. In verse uh, 5, Now therefore, what have... What have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually, my name continually every day is blasphemed. Judah had dishonored the Lord, the holy name of God. Paul speaks of it in the book of Romans. Look at, in the book of Romans chapter uh, 2, verse 17 and verse 24. Chapter 2. Verse 17, and we won't read between because it all refers to the Jew. Romans 2, verse 17 says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. And goes on down. In verse 24 it says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. And all in between tells about they knew the will of God. They were, they were an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. They taught others that they should not break the law, and yet they did themselves. And he says, because of this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. And the whole lesson there, we could expound it, but we won't have time. But basically it was saying this, you Jews, Paul said, you're, the, you're called a Jew. You're supposed to keep God's law. You claim to have kept God's law, and you have broken God's law, and you claim it before the Gentiles, and the Gentiles see you breaking the law, and thus they say they, they blaspheme the name of God because they were not doing what they professed to do. In other words, they were hypocrites. They were not living up to their profession. And here it tells about in the Old Testament, back in Isaiah 52, and my name continually, every day, is blasphemed. So Judah had dishonored the holy name of God day by day, every day. Verse 6, now, Isaiah 52, verse 6. Follow it along. It says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. In other words, by delivering them from Babylon, they would know his name. 
Let's hurry on now. I'd like to finish this chapter. Verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith and design, Thy God reigneth. This is the feet of the messenger returning, running to tell the good news about what God has done. You know, Paul quotes that in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 concerning those who preach the gospel. And he says, And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? And he applies it to the preacher. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. What he's saying back here in Isaiah 52, 7, the good tidings and the good news of good that's published salvation. The word good news here are evangel or the gospel. That's where we get our word evangelism or preaching of the gospel. The gospel means good news. And so preachers today and those that proclaim the word of God are bearing good news. Not the good news of deliverance from Babylon, but the good news and the good news of what God had done back in in uh, Isaiah's day, in Israel's deliverance from Babylon, but the good news of salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. And not only an earthly deliverance from captivity, but a deliverance from sin and from bondage. This is good news. That's what preachers are to preach. We've got good news, haven't we? Uh, Paul says the gospel is the, the gospel of the good news. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. What is this good news? That Christ died for our sins. That's good news. That He was buried. That He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. That's good news. That's the real good news of the Gospel. And by the way, if they don't preach that, they don't preach the good news. The good news is for you and I that we can be saved. That we're no longer uh, captives to sin and to Satan. And the good news is that Christ paid for our sins. The good news is the gospel message. Evangelism means to preach that good news and to declare it. And those that receive it and believe it, receive it in their hearts. And they say, my, what a wonder it is that God would forgive me who am, who, who am such a wicked, awful sinner in the sight of God. Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners of whom I'm chief. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. It can be accepted by all. It's worthy of all acceptation. And he says that Christ Jesus came into the world. He did come into the world. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. And he says, of whom I am chief. I've heard people say, well, Paul didn't mean he, he then was chief. He sure did. He meant exactly what he said. He didn't mean anything else. Someone says, well, you know, now he was holy and he meant I was chief. No, he meant I am chief. Just like you and I. And the closer you get to God, the more of a sinner you believe yourself to be. The more you realize that it's by grace you're saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Why? You can see them running upon the mountains in the moonlight, coming from afar, bearing good news. Can you tell how a man moves, whether he's got good news or bad news? They could tell by that, that uh, messenger as he run across the mountains. They could look over there and they could see, well, he's coming along like this. Uh-oh. 
he's afraid to tell. He's coming along with a steady pace and anxious to get there and doing the best. Even if he's about giving out, he's got good news. He wants to come and tell them exactly what happened, what God has done. And you and I should come with 